beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we uh, carry on through the canons of Dort, we, we come to uh, a series of articles that are very pastoral in nature. And as we've been working our way through this, there's, there's a couple of places in the canons of Dort where the, the pastoral care, the pastoral concern, the warmth and the value of, of the truth of election, the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of God's existence, and the reality of our sin are pressed home upon our hearts. With these two articles, I, I'd like to look at them in reverse order. And I'd like to look at them in the, the framework or the context of what's being set forward. Remember, we're dealing with total depravity. That man is, is totally affected by sin. Everything about man has been tainted and touched by sin. And yet God comes with his invincible, conquering grace. God looks upon sinners who are dead, and he makes them alive. A grace that overcomes sin and overcomes death. And we need to recognize that in this framework, in this context, there is a mistaken notion, a mistaken presentation with regard to election that isn't representative of, what, of who God is and, and what we teach with regard to God. It's more in line with deism. Deism is this notion that, that everything that unfolds in this world, everything that unfolds in creation is, is like God's uh, a great clock, that, that he's just at creation, wound everything up, and then he, he sets it on the shelf, and he steps back, and everything unfolds. He's planned how it has unfolded. He's designed how it has unfolded, but he just sets it arm's length, and he, he's completely... Well, not completely, but mostly disconnected from how things happen in this world. He's just the sovereign designer. He's like the, the engineer who, who never comes on the building site to see what's, what's going on, to see what's how everything is working. Well, that's not how God is involved. That's not what God's election is. That can be a very fatalistic view of God that says, well, what's going to be is going to be. Hey, Sarah, Sarah, he's not involved at all, so what does it matter? Friends, that's God as a disinterested, uncaring overseer of this world. But what we come to again, and particularly in Article 16, reminds us of how intimately God is caring for this world. As a sovereign God, as the the ruler of all things, he's engaging in humanity, he's engaging in this world. God deals with people. And that's what we need to understand. Those who, who have this idea that, that God's just kind of watching things unfold and completely disconnected, it makes me wonder whether they, they've actually read some of the stories of the Bible, some of the teaching of God's Word, of how intimately he is involved in this world. Listen to the, the, the pastoral warmth, the wonder of who our God is, as Paul reminds us of that. And he speaks of, of God's care and God's concern. And he unfolds for us the, the triune God. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and Paul has been through and is going to go through the wonder of what Christ has done. Christ didn't stay in heaven and accomplish salvation. No, he he made himself nothing. He took to himself the form of a man and he came into this world. And so there is great encouragement in Christ. And what Paul is dealing with next is the love of the Father. Any comfort from love. That love obviously would be the love of the Father. That the Father loves his world. The Father interacts with his world. 
any participation in the spirit. You see, this isn't a God, and this isn't the triune God who's, who's completely disconnected and disinterested from this world. He's a God whom we know, who loves his creation and cares for his world. Any affection and sympathy. Paul's reminding us of God's heart, of who the triune God is. This is the pastoral concern of the canons of Dort as well, that we understand the invincible grace of God is, is not the rule of a tyrant who is completely disconnected and disinterested with his subjects. He's not a dictator who wants his will done no matter what, and you better do it, and you better just step in line, or he's going to, to pay you your due. The reality of, of God's invincible grace, of his conquering grace, is that he's a, a gracious God, a caring God, who faithfully and powerfully fulfills his loving design and accomplishes his tender and gracious purpose. You see, a sovereign God is, is to be adored and honored. A saving grace which he bestows upon those who are in need. And that's the wonder of this picture that God is showing us. In Philippians 2, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Do you hear God's heart for God's heart for the accomplishment of His grace. Well, that's what we're considering, how, how grace moves us, how God's sovereign, invincible, powerful grace moves us to see His graciousness. And we're going to consider the directions of this graciousness in, in two different ways. First of all, the way God deals with us. The gracious way that God deals with us in His sovereign, conquering grace, the gracious way He deals with us, and secondly, the way we are to reflect that grace, that graciousness of our God to others. So first of all, the way God deals with us. This is Article 16. Man is still man. Man, through his fall, did not cease to be man. Endowed with intellect and will. It's a recognition that, that while he, his fall has distorted his nature, that now he is a sinner, yet he retains the image of God. It's a distorted image, but it still is the image of God. And the canons of Dort remind us there's, there's two particular characteristics. We've considered the character of the soul, and it is mind, will, and emotions. But now it focuses particularly on these, these elements of our activity, the, the, the intellect we think, and the will we desire. Man is still a man. Even in his fallen estate, he bears the image of God and that he has an intellect and he has a will. The entrance of sin didn't destroy the mind or the will, but instead what it does horribly is it redirects the mind and the will away from God so that we exchange the truth for a lie. Sin reverses the roles. It changes the roles. We've been created as God's image bearers to reflect Him. We are the clay. He is the potter. We're in His hands for Him to display His glory in us. But it reverses this, these roles. And now we use our mind and we, we use our wills in such a way that the, the potter 
must give an account to the claim. We expect and we anticipate part of that redirection of sin is that we want God to do our will rather than surrender to him. <coughs> the potter must give the answers that the clay wants. It must do what the clay wants. You see how horribly sin has corrupted our mind and our will. And yet, even as we consider that, we see that, that God doesn't just simply blot out our mind or blot out our will in the grace of regeneration. The canons of Dort speak of it this way, this divine grace of regeneration does not act upon man as though they were blocks and stones. As if we're mere puppets, simply doing what God wants. You see how graciously God deals with us? God doesn't take away our will. He doesn't take away our mind. He doesn't take away our will. We're not dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Instead, the will is wonderfully and graciously changed, restored, recovered. Called and quickened by God, and he converts our will. So that as the canons of Dort say, as a result, where formerly rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominated our will, instead something different has happened with our will. Now it's conformed, it's formed and conformed. Now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to, begins to prevail. Amazing pastoral words, isn't it? Our whole will has a new direction, a new devotion, a new anticipation. We begin to, to follow the Spirit's directives. We begin to want the things that God wants, in which the true spiritual renewal and freedom of our will consists. That's actually life itself. That's the way we've been created. We begin to see and trust what God wants is best for us. No, that's not going to be easy. But there is this move from grace to graciousness. That our will needs to be surrendered, not destroyed, but surrendered to God and following God is the path of life as shown to us by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he knows the horror of what alienation is facing him as he faces the horror of death. As his soul is exceedingly troubled, he says, even unto death. And what does he pray? Not my will, but your will be done. If it be possible that this, he didn't, he didn't relish the fact that he had to go to the cross, but he recognized life, grace, moved to graciousness. Your will needs to be done. And so it is with us. And the Spirit, when he enlivens the will, begins to conform us unto the image of Jesus Christ. A result of this is whereas formerly there was rebellion and resistance of the flesh, where that dominates our will, now through regeneration, a prompt and sincere obedience begins to prevail. And I'm so thankful for that word, it begins to prevail. Doesn't mean it's fully accomplished. Doesn't mean we fully arrive. Doesn't mean we always want the things that we're supposed to want. But we know the Spirit is working when His will, when God's will, 
begins to prevail in our lives. That means we begin to follow and be fashioned according to his design. Our will is changed, but so also is our minds. Listen to what Paul says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Never a mind all by itself, but a mind that comes from thinking Christ's thoughts, from hearing Christ's words, from knowing Christ's word. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't tell us, in light of the, the fact that we do have a depraved mind, he doesn't tell us to switch off our brains, to stop thinking. Some people approach faith that way. They approach faith as, as well, when you can't understand it, then you just have to believe it. And we believe because we can't understand. That's not what God's Word teaches. God's Word teaches, don't switch off your brain. Actually, use your brain. Have the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think God's thoughts. Listen to God's Word. Consider how He thinks about things. And look at life that way. Augustine's great, one of Augustine's great statements, he had many, but one of them was, I believe, I believe, credo ut intelligum, it means I believe in order that I may understand. Faith is essential for right thinking, for godly thinking, for true thinking. I believe in order that I may understand. God wants us to change our minds, to change our thinking about life. To redirect the way we think about every aspect of our lives. That's what we talk about when we talk about a Christian worldview. It's a way of, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way that they look at life, that they think about life, that they pursue life and death. And God's Word is calling us now. The Spirit is equipping us. And the, and, and the triune God is enabling us to develop this Christian worldview. That's the outworking of the Gospel in our lives. Regeneration changes our worldview. What happens with a new way of thinking? Well, it's reflected in the work of Christ that we are called to. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You begin to think about others first. We think about God, what he wants, and then our fellow man. Well, that's the wonder of the evidence of regeneration. And the way this works out, is secondly, in the way we deal with others. This is the way God deals with us, not as, as blocks and stones, as puppets on a string, as, as people with whom he's disconnected, he's just directing us indifferently, but he deals with us personally, and he enlivens the will and directs the mind to live for him. But then that's going to affect the way we deal with others. In Article 15, in dealing with others, directs us to think about how we deal with ourselves, how we deal with others in different categories. First of all, with regard to ourselves, 
This grace God owes to no one. One of the realities of how we deal with others is we need to think differently about ourselves. We need to think with humility. God owes nothing to us. He's not in our debt. We are entirely in his debt. And so we are called when, when he works and when he reveals his work to us in his word, we are called to render to God eternal thanks for everything he gives us in Jesus Christ. He, therefore, who receives this grace owes and renders. It's not just I'll get around to it one day as I want to respond in this way because of what God has done for me. It's very personal. It's very intent. There is no pride. We must not act proudly as though we've distinguished ourselves and we've set ourselves as those who are more worthy. This is a real danger. It's a real danger which exists within the Reformed faith. It's a real danger that exists within the teaching about election, that we take those words, chosen ones, and they swell the chest and they swell the soul with pride because you can hear it. Where are the chosen ones? And this was the danger that happened in Israel. And it continues in Judaism today. They thought they were so inalienably God's favored people that no matter what happened to them, they were guaranteed God's pleasure. Regardless of whether they obeyed or disobeyed, whether they believed or disbelieved, even today you can find atheistic Jews, Jews who deny God and yet hang on to the fact that, that they are Jews who are the chosen people, elevated just a degree above the rest of humanity. May God forbid that this theology affects our view of others, affects our view of ourselves. When we think and we claim we're the chosen ones and we think it's because we're special, that declaration of pride indicates that grace for what it is has been lost. We're disconnected from God. Not that he's disconnected from us, but we're disconnected from him. That is not why God has shown us his grace and reveal the wonder of his election. Miracle 15 reminds us of this. This cannot be the case with you. We must by no means act haughtily as if we have distinguished ourselves from any others. In reality, it is to prompt a humility. Oh, the wonder of God's grace that he has looked upon a sinner like myself show me the way of life. That is who our God is. And that's how we are to think about ourselves. But then the, the canons of Dort go on and, well now, how does that affect your view of others? How does God's grace affect our gracious view of others? And there's several in this category of dealing with others in which we have to deal graciously. There are those who profess their faith and amend their lives. Further, about those who outwardly profess their faith and amend their lives, we are to judge and speak in the most favorable way. What is that favorable way? We're to hear what they say, we're to observe their lives, and we're to say, this is the, the person in which God has been working. You don't know people's hearts. That's not your call. That's God's work, not ours. Is the faith that they profess true? 
Does it reflect a true awareness of who Jesus is and what he has done? Does it an unfolding of what God's word is teaching if their faith is, is based upon what is true? Receive them as a brother and sister in the Lord. Does the truth affect their life so that they're, they're striving to amend their ways, their, their mind and their will and their affections are changing, being conformed unto the image of Christ? Embrace them as a brother and sister. Speak of them most favorably. What a glorious way. We of all people must be the most gracious of all because we recognize how gracious God has been to us. Grace leads to graciousness. A graciousness towards those who walk by faith in Christ. What a blessing to see our brothers and sisters doing this and showing this to one another. But what about those who, who boast about believing in Christ, believing in Jesus, but their lives don't change? How do we deal graciously with them who have not received this grace? Well, we recognize the danger therein. They either do not care at all for these spiritual things, or they're pleased with what they have and they falsely boast about having what they do not have. How do we deal graciously with them? We talk with them. We warn them. We encourage them. We recognize the plight they're in, and dealing graciously with them means calling them to repentance and obedience, calling them to know Christ and to follow Him, warning that, that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will, will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And here again, we see, we see the character of this gracious reality that, that were it not for God's working in our lives, we may be in that same plight. And here again, we need to recognize the place of the discipline of the church. Discipline is not an act of revenge to make the sinner pay for their sins. Oh, no, no. It's not an act of power to force them to comply. That's not even how God deals with us. It's a gracious, loving warning of the Lord that you are wandering from the fold and your soul is in peril, and you need to turn back to the Lord. And you need to trust His Word, and you need to amend your life. How desperately that is needed. To say someone is wrong, to say someone's lifestyle is wrong, is not an expression of hate, provided we say it with the backing of God's grace and an awareness of the graciousness with which he deals with us. And we go and we speak the truth in love the way God does. Not with ultimatums, not with expressions of authority, not with threats, but you see how God deals with us? That's what we have to go back to. Not to suggest that, that those people who disobey God are just animals. 
blocks and stones and we need to force and coerce, but to appeal to them, to call them back, to lovingly express there's something out of accord with God in your manner of life, in the truths or the falsehoods that you have embraced. Go back to the authority of God's word and appeal to that. Those who vainly boast, warn them graciously, lovingly, and call them back to God's word. But there's one more category. The canons of Dort remind us of, of those who have not heard the call of the gospel. As for those who have not yet been called, we should pray for them to God, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the appeal for missions. Those who haven't heard the call of the gospel, we need to pray for them. We need to pray that the church would be active in her ministry of missions, bringing the gospel to those who haven't heard, or for those who have wandered, or for those who have shut their ears. We, we live in a culture that is post-Christian. There may be some familiarity, but by and large, many people are unfamiliar with the teaching of God's word. What do we need to pray for them? Pray that God will bless the ministry of the church to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking that gospel into the highways and byways, calling them. The beautiful parable of this is, is Jesus with the wedding feast, and you know what happened. There were some who, who had the invitation, and they turned their back on it. They were too busy. They were too engaged in their lives, and they, they ignored it. And that's the previous category. Warn them. You're coming under God's judgment don't heed that invitation. But for others, Jesus said, go into the highways and the byways among everyone. Summon them to this invitation. And that's what we're called to. This is the need for witnessing. This is the need for the ministry of the church. This is the need that we have to pray. Pray for them. Pray for the outreach of the gospel. Pray for the opening of ears. Pray that the call of the gospel may be impressed on sinners who are lost in their sin. That's the gracious way that we deal with others. But the confidence in God's grace of what He can do, He who can do the impossible can bring life to the dead, allows us to go out into the world. As Paul reminds us, we recognize that it's God who's working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's gracious dealing with us affects our gracious dealing with others. And we didn't read it, but I'd like to close the way Paul does. In verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. What does that sound like? That sounds like the graciousness that God has shown to us. Then you may be blameless and innocent children of God, reflecting his grace and his graciousness without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life with your mind and with your will, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's the calling we have from God, that God's grace makes us gracious in dealing 
with others. May God help us to see the wonder of his gracious dealing with us <coughs> that we can show that to those around us. Because his grace, his grace works. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray for your grace to be known by us, to be desired by us, that you would continue to deal graciously with us, that we may amend our lives and we may embrace the truth, that our will and our mind may be conformed unto Christ, that we may show your love, that we may show our participation in the Spirit, that we may show the comfort of Christ that we may be united in this way. We pray also for others who have not heard the call of the gospel, living very closely to us, indifferent, oblivious to the wonder of who you are. Lord, use your church, use us to make known your grace. We pray as all well for the work of missions, and Lord, we pray that this would continue in foreign lands, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you bless this work. In times when, when COVID is ravaging, Lord, we pray that you would preserve the missionaries from harm and danger. And also bless the work of your church in those places where there is no hope. We pray that you, your light may shine in the darkness across the world, but even in our that we may be moved from grace to graciousness the way you have with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.